Hello, hello once again, and welcome to the show. It's Dan here. I'm on my own, very briefly. You'll hear from Jack and myself in a moment, but I just need to interject with a little correction. Jack and I got a little overexcited and were a little overzealous in our uh, efforts to interpret some of the events you're about to hear about. We misread some things and used an overactive imagination slightly to embellish a um, exciting enough, intriguing enough story. You're about to hear us in a moment talk about United Airlines Flight 553, which crashed outside of Chicago um, on December 8th, 1972. Killed in the plane crash was Dorothy Hunt, wife of Watergate burglar Howard Hunt. In the plane crash, of the 61 people on board, 43 were killed, 16 were injured, but there were also two fatalities and two injuries on the ground. And in our misreading, we interpreted what we were being told to suggest that um, Dorothy Hunt was one of the, the ground fatalities when in actual fact she was on the plane. Conspiracy theories abound around what happened to Flight 553. They seem to centre on the proposition that there were numerous people on board the flight who had some connection to the unfolding Watergate scandal, 12 in all. Um, and so the suggestion is that there were a whole series of political murders, political assassinations that took place and were disguised as a accidental plane crash. Um, I've got to say, it sounds a little outlandish to me, but uh, one never knows. <laughs> that said, all that out the way, welcome once again to the show. Thanks for listening. Um, let's get to it. <laughs> I did the thing. Oh, your job. You did. Yeah, I did the thing you said and just relaxed my arm like that. Uh-huh. I think it was definitely better. Uh-huh. Not starting to. Uh-huh. Okay, hit me with it, Chuck. All H. right, Howard Hunt. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, so H. Howard Hunt, classic Watergate burglar guy. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's a type of person. <laughs> yeah, he's a Watergate burglar guy. Uh, he's that kind of guy. <laughs> he's just a dude. A new type of guy. <laughs> when explaining Watergate, David Talbot opens it with like. This reminds me of nothing other than, like, the Simpsons episode where Bart's trying to sleep and Homer's, like, wakes him up and is like, you want to see my new chainsaw and hockey mask? <laughs> this story rocks Yeah, so like, I, I got, like, a, a sentence and a half into it and I was like, wait, is this Watergate? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, so, so, uh, H. Howard Hunt's son is called Saint, just so you know. <laughs> Saint John. Weird. Yeah, Saint John. Okay. 
Late one night in June 1972 at the family's Witch's Island home, which, okay, <laughs> that's on the nose, in suburban Maryland, Hunt f- St. John was frantically, wo- oh no, I'm sorry, Hunt had frantically woken up his 18-year-old son, and he said, I need you to do exactly as I say and not ask any questions, said Hunt, who was in a sweaty and disheveled state that his son had never before witnessed. Oh, God. Jesus Christ, that's traumatizing. He ordered St. John to fetch window cleaner, rags, and rubber gloves from the kitchen and help him rub away fingerprints from a pile of espionage equipment, including cameras, microphones, and walkie-talkies. Later, St. John helped his father stuff the equipment into two suitcases, which they loaded into the trunk of his father's Pontiac Firebird, and then they drove down through the darkness to the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, where they got out and tossed the suitcases into the murky water home. On the way back home, Hunt and St. Hunt told Saint that he had been doing some special work for the White House and things had gone south. <laughs> so many, so many, so many bits of that are just like, I don't know, that's the best way to get rid of them is to just toss them in a river in suitcases. Why couldn't you have just wiped off the fingerprints yourself? Why did you drag your son into it? Like so much of it is like, damn, this guy's like, he was probably pretty good back when he did the Guatemala coup, but like, I don't know, man. Like he's losing it a bit here. <laughs> So was he there, or did he arrange? He, he knew he arranged the other guys, right? He wasn't one of the ones that was caught because some of them were caught on the sea. Yeah, I always thought he was, but I, I suppose he wasn't. Mm. I um, think it, I think it does give the names of the four people that he's. Like, yeah. So the next paragraph is: It was the beginning of the Watergate drama, in which Howard Hunt played a starring role as the leader of the White House plumbers, the five burglars who were all arrested uh, during the Democratic breaking into the Democratic. Democratic Party's national headquarters. So yeah, it was all five of the guys had a history with Hunt, and Hunt, you're right, was organizing them. Okay. One of them was Frank Sturgis, who we'll come back to in a minute. Uh-huh. Um, okay, the CIA killed Kennedy, whatever, that's yeah. not that crazy. <laughs> this next bit, Dan, makes me lose my <laughs> mind whenever I talk about it, dude. Because, like, either this insane coincidence happened, or the CIA orchestrated what I'm about to say. And I think the, like, former the is most, the craziest yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It would, it would be the most ludicrous, like, hit ever conducted. It would yeah. be. Yeah, and yeah, it makes, yeah, yeah. okay. So, 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 so <laughs> Howard Hunt, about to be caught and is going to go to prison. Yeah, sure. And is becoming legitimately a bit alarmed, <laughs> particularly for the welfare of his family. Mm. Um, starts saying some sort of, like, alarming things in the direction of the White House, particularly <laughs> suggesting he kind of knows where the bodies are buried. He has information around the Bay of Pigs, quote-unquote. Yeah. A little bit of ske- speculation as to what he actually means by... That whole Bay of that Pigs That whole thing. Bay of Pigs thing. <laughs> this is in the, in the early 70s, obviously. Yeah, Nixon's president, yeah, yeah. Um, so he starts making demands of the White House <laughs> that he needs to be looked after, basically. Yeah. Um... How much does he ma- demand? Two million dollars? Apparently two million dollars, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is insane. Yeah. Demand, um, I mean, request, I don't know. Request. Make a legitimate claim for. Yeah. Um, uh, and as we know... Invoice for two million dollars? Yeah. And as we know, Expensive Dan, plumbing job? From, from our last episode, does uh, Nixon have access to very sketchy, perhaps fascist, <laughs> connected Romanian campaign money? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nixon has become uh, into possession of bags of cash. <laughs> On quite a number of occasions in this book. Yeah, and so basically there are uh, Watergate tapes of, like, um, Nixon in his office talking about this with Holdeman and being like, okay, holy shit, Hunt's going to uncover a lot of things. And Holdeman's kind of like, ha 
what? <laughs> <laughs> and Nixon's like, he wants money. Let's just give him some money. Um, okay. So, <laughs> so what happens next is presumably Nixon gives Hunt's family this money. Fast forward to, I guess, like a not too long later when um, Howard Hunt's wife and St. John's mother. You're so we're aware this is another tragedy we're making light of. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it's so fucking like yeah. if this happened to me. I would expect people to do this. Yeah. So Dorothy Hunt was just hanging out at their suburban house and she was in possession of this $2 million, which Talbot makes the claim that this can be direct, that money can be directly uh, traced back to Nixon's reelection campaign fund, right? She's just hanging out, vibing, counting her money. <laughs> and. A commercial airline flight, and I'm not making this up. I think it's flight 553 or flight 533. Just look up Howard Hunt's wife plane crash because a fucking United Airlines plane is supposed to be landing at Chicago's airport and just crashes into her home, killing like everybody on board, of course, and like a couple other people on the ground and her. And the money just goes everywhere. And it's just like... <laughs> like, I, like I, I don't this is the shit that like if this is a psyop to be like guys let's just make this hit so insane that it'll make Jack go insane in 50 years that like it works dude because it is so insane like I said either this is like the most ludicrously organized hit on the planet and it's an, or it's a coincidence and if it's a coincidence that makes me even more insane it's so nuts dude it's just like did the CIA, like, take control of a plane and crash it into it? Just go shoot her. Like, what? And why kill her? Kill Hunt, for God's sake. I know. It's like... Uh, yeah, dude. It's so crazy. That whole thing is so insane. And then he, Talbot just kind of moves on. And he's like, yeah, that was wild. Yeah, that when my happened. wife died in that plane yeah, crash yeah, yeah. that only crashed into her house. It's like... <laughs> okay. All right. That's batshit insane. Um... <sighs> And, okay, so then we should frame this also by saying that this is all coming out because Howard Hunt later in his life, in, like, the early 2000s or whatever, when he's just, like, a sad old man in his house watching Fox News, mm. his estranged son... Surprise, surprise, St. <laughs> John has some questions. Yeah, St. John's <laughs> like, so, I feel like you killed a Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because his, his, his dad is one of the central, like... Um, prime candidates i suppose prime suspects along the way mm. obviously there are many and myriad investigations official and um independent research based <laughs> <laughs> the best kind uh, <laughs> best kind of investigation um and he emerges as a like key candidate person who is speculated upon yeah right? he's one of these nexus people yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, he's kind of thrown under the bus at one point as well don't even the yeah. cia kind of no I, I get it wrong there is a point in time when the cia i think this is during the like house uh commission house, either the church committee or the rockefeller committee. there was one in the late 70s which was basically just mm -hmm. called like the church select the house committee, Com on select committee on presidential yeah, yeah. assassinations or something <laughs> yeah um, and there's a period of time where the CIA are not entirely sure where it's going to go, and they are contemplating the possibility that they might have to throw some people under the bus. And, like, and their prime yeah. candidate is like, well, Finger Hunt and a few other people, we kind of know who they are, and like, yeah. we'll shove them out of the way kind of thing, or shove them in front of the, uh, in front of the cameras. In I front suppose. of the plane. In front of the plane, yeah, in front of the plane. <laughs> Which also speaks again to like these class dynamics, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hunt and Harvey in the same way, like, definitely thought themselves like close to the center of 
power in these institutions, mm. but they were really never anywhere near like the commanding heights of these. Yeah, this situation. They were always pawns on Alan Dulles's chessboard. Yeah. Oh, hundred mm. percent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I think also the fact that he asked for a shit ton of money from Nixon didn't endear him to anybody. Um, And so anyway, yeah, I mean, St. John later in his life, this this bit, Talbot paints it as completely legitimate and like um, H. Howard Hunt's testimony is like realistic and real and whatever. I have heard like other people kind of say that it's a bit sketchy. Um, Regardless, Hunt says some pretty insane stuff. And the, like, testimony that he gives about being involved in the Kennedy assassination, they, um, St. John tries to sell to a number of news outlets and nobody will take it. And eventually the Rolling Stone takes it. Um, and it's pretty crazy. Yeah, Talbot is particularly irked, I suppose, that this, what he thinks as, as sort of, like, almost ironclad confession yeah. doesn't really get taken. This is in the early 2000, 2006 or something, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. like, very recent. Um, doesn't really get taken up as being a serious thing. And... I guess a lot of the central, like obviously Talbot has issues with Hunt's um, description of events, yeah. but at the same time, Talbot does take it quite seriously as the bare bones of what actually happened kind of thing. A lot yeah. of stock is put on this deathbed confession from Howard Hunt. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting. I guess you got to look at his motives. Like, he's dying. So it's not like he's doing this for money or anything, mm-hmm. but also like he's also dying. <laughs> so yeah. like, who knows? Um, it does seem like the story that he tells is very possible. And I mean, that's, the, I don't know, that's the thing with all of this. It's like when you try and get down into the nitty gritty, it's like, okay, we all know that like the CIA and the mafia and whatever were all involved in this plot because the force was he like hated Kennedy. More than that, it's just kind of speculation. Um, but he, he, gives a very, he gives a very interesting story. And it's kind of exactly what you'd expect, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, he makes a point that like he was invited to a meeting between him and Frank, this guy Frank Sturgis, who we've said, who would go on to be one of his, you know, one of the Watergate burglars, um, who at this point was just like, uh, he calls him a soldier of fortune. David Talbot calls him a soldier of fortune. But there's another guy there named David Morales, who's like, you know, an anti-Castro guy again. And um, they basically just say, hey, Bill Harvey is organizing a campaign to kill the president. <laughs> Are you in, bro? We have some like, uh, and I Castro Cubans on our side and we've got some uh, mafia guys on our side because of Harvey. Um, you want to do oh, this? Oh yeah, and it's been okayed by LBJ. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's the point. That's like Howard Hunt is a, like initially like, yeah, I'm not down to like do something with Harvey. He's like a drunk, like fat cop. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not down for that. And he, Frank Sturgis basically says like, yeah, but this comes from the top, like implying Dulles. And also kind of implying LBJ, actually, which is insane. Don't know how much I believe the LBJ stuff, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but the Dulles stuff, mm-hmm, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the all the LBJ stuff is like, it, not even circumstantial. It's just like, who would benefit? Yeah. Obviously, Linda B. Johnson, because he, if we don't know, he was Vice Kennedy's vice president and he became president. Yeah. Um, he His political career was definitely on the down and out kind of thing. He was a waning star yeah. who got onto the ticket because it, he, he, ha, he shared very little with the Kennedys and had actually told his, um, ironically, his, like, because he, he was from the South, his sort of, like, oil baron backers yeah. <laughs> had told them that there was not a chance in hell he was going to join the Kennedy ticket because he had been the front, the presumed front runner on mm. the fall in the Democratic primary in 1960 until, like, Kennedy overtook him and won the primary. Um, and then eventually he did 
acquiesce, I suppose, to mm. being Kennedy's running mate, and then told a friend of his afterwards that he'd looked at the stats and had seen that <laughs> one in four presidents die in office. So, like, yeah. this is pretty good odds. He's a gambling president. man, he said. He's yeah. a gambling man. It's a pretty good way to potentially rehabilitate his career. And even more, like, poignant than that, I suppose, he had associations with a congressman, I think, who... Um, who was beginning to be embroiled in this massive scandal, um, corruption and like prostitution and all the things you would expect. And basically, LBJ was about to be implicated in this scandal basically on the day that Kennedy was killed. Yeah. So obviously, it's not to say that Lyndon B. Johnson knew or was involved in the plot, but like, if there was somebody who was most immediately going to gain materially, yeah, it was definitely Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah, and, and also like with his connection to the like oil firms, he was definitely yeah. like this particularly active and involved section of American capital's mm. favorite candidate to be president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think the way I I read it, because like there is the mention of like the meeting that he had in his Dallas ranch with Dulles like several days before the assassination, which is a little insane. But also like, I don't know. I don't I don't think you necessarily need to think that he was in on it at all, because it's like all it like, okay, if I was Dulles, all I would do is just be like, okay, you don't need him to know what's going to happen. You just need to say, like, if something were to happen. Would you be on board to be our guy and not do some of the shit that Kennedy did? Because, you know, you'll see what happens to people who do stuff that Kennedys do. So it's like, I don't know, need to know basis if you're running an operation like this, I feel like. And like, it doesn't matter because at the best, or at worst, he was complicit. At best, he was just like, yeah, do what you're going to do. And then like knew about what happened after the events and didn't say anything. Because holy shit, I wouldn't either. Yeah. <laughs> but also we need to say like, at the very beginning of Kennedy's presidency, Johnson made this really weird request to, like, have unprecedented powers over um, over the entire national security apparatus, Del- uh, Talbot says, including the Defense Department, the CIA, the State Department, and the Office of Civil Defense and Mobilization. And Kennedy just, like, was like, what the fuck? Like, and didn't even respond to it. Like, of course I'm not going to give you that. So that's a little sus. He's like, yeah, hey, can so- you put me in charge of the CIA? Somebody Talbot quotes says that this is basically the most outlandish request any vice president has ever made of a president. Yeah. And as you say, like, Kennedy's like, what the fuck, mate? This is not happening. <laughs> it's it's um, not going to happen. So, yeah, that, it, that, it's worth highlighting that because, like, yes, not only was Lyndon B. Johnson heavily connected to, like, Southern oil barons, he was also very heavily connected to the defense establishment, to the CIA. There is a reason why he wanted to be given powers in this realm kind of thing because those were the interests that he represented read into that what you will yeah exactly i mean that's this whole thing read into it what you will yeah yeah, yeah. like um all right so then uh this is i just want to read this just because this is classic when we're talking about h howard hunt and frank sturgis and bill harvey um organizing a lot of this stuff um we should also say again like to emphasize that like howard hunt was not going to do it um, because he was like, you know, uh, these people who are all involved seem extremely sketchy and this doesn't seem like it's going to work. I'm out, dude. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. But when he realized that, like, Dulles was the person at the top, he was he was in on it. And there's you, after that, you just get this, when you get the actual descriptions of uh, the people who are involved, you get this classic bit, the Talbot says, where he says, while assembling Castro, 
assassination team, which is, this is Harvey. Um, he reached out to a variety of underworld professionals, including the infamous European assassin codenamed QJ Wynn, whom the CIA had recruited to kill Patrice Lumumba. And then he goes on to say, in fact, among the strange and murderous characters who converged in Dallas in November 1963 was a notorious French OAS commando named Jean Sutre, who was connected to plots against de Gaulle. Sutre was arrested <laughs> in Dallas after the Kennedy assassination and then deported to Mexico for some reason. And then de Gaulle was like, what the fuck? I'm about to go to Mexico. Like, this guy's tried to kill me many times before. Why did you do that? Which I think is very funny. Um, a little suspicious. A little yep. suspicious that he Certainly. was just there, but so is everybody, as we've said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, and then I guess we need to talk about the final or final. Yeah. Point. Well, also there was the point in the period of time. Basically, um, Hunt basically gives some names, doesn't he? Yeah. Of like he he basically names the assassins. Mm. He suggests that he is like uh, on the benches kind of thing. And one one of the things that Talbot's a bit suspicious of is like Hunt is very keen to implicate Harvey. Like Harvey is the quarterback. Yeah. And Hunt is like, um, Hunt is just on the bench kind of thing on the sidelines. He's really keen to downplay his own involvement. Mm. Um, one of the people he names as an accomplice in the, in the plot um, is someone whose name I've forgotten. <laughs> Um, but um, he has particular reason to be disgruntled at Kennedy, not only as like an ardent anti-communist and uh, ardent anti-Castroite and so shares all of the same sort of like ideological sentiments of this milieu that we're, we mm. are now familiar with, but also his ex-wife, who was quite <laughs> a sort of like famous artist, had then gone on to be a mistress of Kennedy's. Yeah, that is so funny, <laughs> dude. That's so funny. So uh, yeah, yeah. In sort of like contemporary parlance, he feels to me like the ultimate wife guy who decides <laughs> he needs to go and kill his his, uh, his ex-wife's new boyfriend. <laughs> That's uh, ultimate wife guy. Um, yeah, I mean, that just sets up basically everything that happened. But I mean, I guess we need to talk about... History's famous Patsy. History's most famous Patsy. And... Man, you come away from this feeling so bad for Oswald. Like, I don't know. This is this is Talbot's kind of own agenda too. But like, man, Oswald in with a bad crowd from like day one, and like seemed just like a nice guy. You know, he seemed kind of smart and like deep thinking, kind of a loner. But like, man, sucks that he got shot. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Talbot's whole take on it is that there's a lot of weirdness going on with Oswald. Yeah. There are so many question marks. We just really have no idea what the actual background of the story is other yeah. than like the key events of which there are many and basically just raise more questions for the most yeah. part um i mean it's a sad story from the offing isn't it like he's raised by a single mother who basically can't cope with him and his two brothers he's sent to a like famously horrible orphanage for a little <laughs> while it, i should say he's like born up born and raised in new orleans yeah um goes to this famously horrible orphanage where it's quite likely that he was at least witness to abuse of children. Mm. His family then moves to Chicago where he becomes this sort of like famous truant Mm. and is at one point sent for some kind of psychiatric evaluation. And this kind of evaluation, this the person who evaluated him psychiatrically would then go on to give quite damning evidence in the Warren Commission 
painting him as basically the psychopath everybody wants to see him as. But also, he is also identified by other social workers there as being actually quite intelligent and having pretty Mm. good reason to be truanting from school. I mean, he finds it boring and he's just bullied by the other kids who take (laughs) the piss out of him for being from the South. Yeah, join the club. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty, like, normal things for sort of, like, somebody from... Uh, that kind of background from reduced means that might be suffering. Yeah. Um, and it basically continues from there. He seems to become something of a fantasist, becomes pretty obsessed with like elaborate lives, with mm. sort of like sp- spy plots to some extent, with the idea of like having important missions, with living multiple lives. He's really f- infatuated and fascinated with like a particular TV program, which is about somebody who's like. Um, some kind of secret agent of some sort. Yeah. He's really sort of fascinated with lives that are very different from his own mundane one. Dude, that's so sad, man. That's yeah. just because that's how everybody feels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, this is, what, this is something that makes you so sympathetic toward yeah, him man. or so you identify with him so well. It's just that, like, it's just looking for, looking for his place, you know? Yeah, well, and he's looking to, like, be in society what like everybody's expected to be which is like the ayn randy and like your own man and like you know no altruism and you know like you just want to be a hero and it's so sad dude because he like he just gets taken advantage of every single step Mm -hmm. of the way Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. such it's so brutal dude Mm -hmm. um i mean yeah one of one of the main things and like talbot kind of implies this might be where he kind of got his first cia connections or at least like a lot of cia people saw someone that they could use was in this thing called the civil air patrol which was like this extremely creepy like uh youth cadet thing where like i'm I'm just gonna read this bit too because this is freakish and disgusting David Ferry, ultimate guy, the Eastern the Eastern Airlines pilot who supervised the local Civil Air Patrol chapter, was a particularly eccentric personality. <laughs> Suffering from alopecia, Ferry took to wearing an ill-fitting reddish wig and filling in his missing eyebrows with theatrical slashes of grease paint. Don't know what he was going for there. Catholic educated, he led a secret secretive and tortured life he liked to practice hypnosis techniques on young cadets under his command and he tried to lure them into a drug research program at tulane university to which he was connected a passionate anti-communist ferry threw himself into new orleans steamy anti-castro politics after the bay of pigs debacle he denounced kennedy with such vicious abandon blah 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 blah. he basically just said somebody should kill kennedy but this is like where Oswald winds up and like so many people are kind of like this. He's just like, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to join the military. So he joins this like civil air patrol, totally gets taken advantage of David Ferry has all of these sketchy connections to not just anti-catcher Cubans, but like he's implied that he's one of the people flying the planes to like move these guns around, move supplies around to people in new Orleans and stuff. Um, and it just kind of, it just gets worse from there for Oswald. Honestly. Yeah. He does join the Marines, doesn't he? Yeah. Spends some time at an air force base in Japan where U2 yeah. flights are thrown from. <laughs> dun, dun, um, dun. and also that base, that air base might be another place where like CIA were operating out of. He may yeah. well have received some kind of training there. Yeah. Um, well, he does a lot of really weird things. Yeah. He, he, he basically, he, he, he absents himself from his military service by lying to say that his mother's ill, yeah. goes back to America, and then goes to Finland. Yeah. And despite having no money, stays at some very lavish hotels in Finland, and then executes a plan to defect to the Soviet Union. So he gets yeah. on a train and goes to Moscow. 
We should say, too, at that air base, though, at Atsugi, which was in Japan, uh-huh. Talbot makes the point that this was, like, a hotbed of CIA, like, LSD techniques because, like, because they were operating so many spy programs out of there that, like, they would dose up operatives who were going to go to the Soviet Union. This is such bullshit, but they'd be like, if we give them LSD once, they won't crack under pressure. And it's like, I don't know if the Soviet Union was, like, giving people acid to, like, get them to crack, but, like, all right, whatever, dude. And he kind of implies that Oswald might have been one of these guys. Yeah. And that maybe perhaps he got instructions to defect, quote unquote, to the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. as you're saying, as part of like a bigger plan, mm-hmm. which again, who the fuck knows? Yeah, there are several occasions in Oswald's, in the story of Oswald's, where he does some things that look very staged. Oh, sure, yeah. One of them are the circumstances of, of his defection. He goes to, I don't know, he goes to the US embassy or something and makes a big point of it, having it known that mm. he intends to defect to the Soviet Union because he's been on this spy base where U-2 planes were flown from. He intends to sh- divulge state secrets to the Soviets. Um, <laughs> in a like, way yeah, which whatever, is, dude. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and everyone's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, then he goes and lives this two and a half year life in the Soviet Union. Gets in married. A, yeah, gets married, has a job in a radio factory. Yeah. Has has some friends. Yeah. It seems like honestly a cool time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gets yeah. in some fights. Yeah. Like, it, 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 like, this is the thing where he like, I mean, it, this has been revealed about his character already, but he's just like a bit of a dreamer, but also mm-hmm. like somebody who's really interested in ideas and like... Um, speculating on philosophy and that kind of thing. He has one particularly close friend in the Soviet Union who, mm. with whom he debates the various merits of living under US capitalism versus Soviet communism and like mm. um, have these various philosophical discussions, gets into some arguments from time to time. Yeah. One of the things his Soviet friend says about him is that um, he never actually fights back in any of these fights and it's very hard for him to imagine him ever hurting anyone. Yeah. Um, that may be truthful or it may be an incredibly elaborate form of uh, cover for... Cover for cover for cover. Yeah. <laughs> That's the thing, isn't it? Like, either this is like the most elaborate construction of a character mm. or it's somebody who's not quite sure what they're doing, is being guided in some ways, yeah. but not in others. That seems like the more plausible scenario is yeah. that like... Well, it's like, how many of these people have we not heard about? The people where it's yeah, like, this is the, yeah. get to a point where one day they have some weird credentials and we can use them for something if we yeah, want, yeah, put yeah. them in a position to do it. Because there I is mean, also the point where like one of the factory guys takes him out hunting and they said that there was like a rabbit five feet in front of him and he couldn't hit it with his gun. And he was just like, all right, fucking Jesus Christ, I'll just <laughs> shoot it for you, goddamn. <laughs> I mean, this is another, another example of like um, David Talbot setting up in earlier phases of the book CIA and Alan Dulles's kind of modus operandi when Al, while, when he's describing Alan Dulles's relationship to people like the Fields and Frank Fields and yeah. how he befriends and, and exploits these people who are sort of like tacitly connected to intelligence circles and also sort of in friendship circles with them but at the same time totally disposable and expendable you make the very astute point that like we don't know how many of these people existed yeah. who like were never given some kind of role in history kind of thing. Yeah, because, like, like, how useful would it be to just have a selection of people who have defected to the Soviet Union? Because, I mean, like, they make, like, they talk about the KGB are, like, obviously following this guy because they're like, this guy's CIA, what the hell? And then he just does nothing. And they're kind of like, like, even at points where, like, they give him opportunities to, like, snoop around secure areas, he does nothing. And they're like, well, either this is, like, they're trying to trick us or, like, he's just an idiot who succumbed to, like, 
I'm going to go defect to the Soviet Union. And it's like, they're just kind of like, what? Who is this guy? Mm. So they just don't really bug him. They just, they're like, yeah, if he wants to make radios for us, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then he undefects. Then he undefects, as you do, <laughs> after he gets a wife and he brings her back. And then he makes the point that it's like, it was extremely easy for him to get back in the country and nobody asked him any questions at all. Yeah, it took like months for the FBI to come and even like talk to him. Kind yeah, like, of thing. why did you lie about Very your mom easily being gets hurt? a passport for his wife to come into the country as well. Yeah. And oh, another very odd thing is that this guy named Antonio Vesiana, who was one of the guys who organized Alpha 66, which is like, again, one of these cute, like American anti-Castro Cuban organizations that would just go strafe people in seaside villages on boats. Um, he openly said, like later in his life, like, yes, I was trained by the CIA and everybody knows that Oswald was too. He was also trained by the CIA. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> uh, a ringing endorsement. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, he's also <laughs> in October of 1963, he gets downgraded as a, um, threat to national security because like everywhere he went, everything that he did, there would be a little note that would go to all like local FBI agencies as being like, Hey, this guy's clearly up to something. Keep an eye on him. And in October of 1963, all of that stopped because I said, don't worry about it. He's yeah, just both, an idiot. Both the CIA and the FBI basically ceased any amount of surveillance or tracking on him like a month before the assassination. Yeah. But there was another example of like his concocting peculiar, seeming to concoct peculiar scenarios, which could be very easily taken note of and then recalled by people later on. Yeah. There's a period in time when he associates himself both with a pro sort of solidarity campaign for Castro and Cuba, and then also some anti-Castro people. And then when he's caught giving out pro-Castro literature by some anti-Castro um advocates youths youths <laughs> it's like thugs i don't know yeah yeah yeah. um he is like accosted by them in the street and they make this big scene um so that everybody can notice and he doesn't like fight back or um have it out with them in any way so it seems like another one of these scenarios where like he can be seen to be acting in a pro castro manner mm. so that people can easily recognize it in the future kind of thing yeah he also goes to mexico and it's like hey, guys, I would like to go to Cuba now. And everyone in Mexico is like, what the fuck? <laughs> Get this guy out of here. And then he goes back home. And there are also a series of events where, like, uh, Oswald, quote-unquote, makes phone calls that were really suspicious. There was even one point where it was, like, shown by one of these anti-Castro Cuban guys. It was, like, it was, supposedly he was, again, giving out leaflets or doing some sketchy stuff. Um, and he was like, oh, no, that wasn't Oswald. That was somebody... Look nothing yeah. like him. That was like some big fat. There guy. was somebody going around masquerading as Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah. Um, presumably to continue to concoct this narrative about uh, Oswald and his activities. Yeah. As a sort of like pro Cuba yeah. activist. The Fair Play for Cuba Committee. Yeah. It's a good name. <laughs> it is a good name. We should start that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Okay, and then the, the narrative kind of cuts out of, for Oswald for a bit until they get into, like, all the sketchy ballistic stuff. Um, and he brings up a couple... David Teller brings up a couple different things. One of them is the Rockefellers, dude. The oh. Rockefellers... Oh, my God. This is, like, classic, you know, you hear the Rockefellers' name come from conspiracy theories, and you're like, yeah, okay, it's like the Soros thing, yeah, okay, but it's like the Rockefellers, dude. What a bunch of scumbags. Holy shit. So David Rockefeller, I didn't know this, during World War II, he was stationed in Northern Africa... 
uh, as a spy for the OSS, but not to keep an eye on the Nazis, to keep an eye on the like nascent anti-colonial movements. That's insane, dude. That's absolutely insane. And then after the war, they send him to Paris to like start like smacking down communists and de gaulle is like yo get this guy out of here like i don't want these americans wandering around pulling shit that i don't know about um what i learned from reading this is if you went to a certain section collection of u.s universities and you came from selection elite circles in u.s life during world war ii you were some kind of espionage agent you either worked for the oss or you worked for some other kind of analogous intelligence gathering institution yeah. it just seems like the role that they all took up when they were yeah. when they were during world war ii and those networks seem to come to influence basically the rest of these people's lives in yeah. terms of like how they fit back into american society and relate to one another <laughs> Yeah, and it was really interesting because I know, I think, was it Nelson Rockefeller tried to become president and failed dramatically and, like, everyone kind of didn't really wind up caring. Yeah, was he, was he, um, was, was Nixon's running mate a Rockefeller? I think so. No, I know, I think the, the, the story, as it unfolds in this, or oh, it's alluded to the fact that a Rockefeller is preparing to run in the 64 election. So mm. presumably he loses yeah. in the primary to Nixon. But yeah, then, that's what it was. That's yeah. what it was. Because I think he was one of these guys who was like, you know, I come from money and we had our goddamn stuff stolen by Castro and the Cubans and I earned this. I went to the right school. I should become president. And then you lose to Nixon. Like, dude, <laughs> dude, just like, just quit. Yeah, like, <laughs> you have no sympathy for this guy because like, what he apparently says is, like, I come from all of this wealth. Yeah. What more is there for me to aspire to than to be president? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Your only motivation loses. is it's the one thing you feel you cannot buy or have, at least. It's disgusting. Mm. Abs- they're like, we're outsourcing that to actors now. Okay. <laughs> we don't want any actual people. Um, and uh, one name that comes up quite a bit in this is the... You've heard this in the news for the last 20 years, folks. The Council on Foreign Relations. Dun, dun, dun. So Talbot says one of the principal arenas where this consensus took place was the Council on Foreign Relations. The Dulles brothers and their Wall Street circle had dominated this private bastion for shaping public policy policy ever since the 1920s. Over the years, CFR meetings, study groups, and publications provided forums in which the organization's leading members, including Wall Street bankers and lawyers, prominent politicians, media executives, and academic dignitaries, hammered out U.S. policy directions, including the decision to drop atomic bombs on Japan, which, like, holy shit, that's insane, um, and the Cold War strategy of containment aimed at the Soviet Union. The CIA-engineered coup that overthrew Guatemala's democratic government was put in motion by Dulles after a CFR study group urged tougher action against Arbenz's left-wing administration. If the, CIA, if the CFR was the power elite's brain, then the CIA was its black-gloved fist. I feel like that's kind of what we're getting at with this entire series of episodes is like, again, talk about these nexus points, but like the CIA is a nexus point for, you know, the bourgeoisie to come together and to be like, hey, this is something that we kind of can't really do with tradition by means of like traditional government and it needs to be kept quiet or like whatever. Or we just need like you to organize some thugs to go in and like kick the shit out of a bunch of banana farmers. Um and like that's yeah, it's uh, that's just kind of what the CIA is, and it seems to be necessary for the like maintenance of empire, um, because things are going to need to be done that like can't be done traditionally. And it's interesting. I, it's horrifying to think that the CFR is like still around and still shaping public policy. And like, go look up uh, who is on the board now. It's pretty freaky. But like, yeah, talk about nexus points. This was one of them. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The um, 
it's this point in the narrative where Dulles comes back into frame as, as you say, as this sort of nexal connection, nexal point between peoples. Mm. Uh, David Talbot is very clearly pointing the finger at Alan Dulles, right? Yeah. Alan Dulles <laughs> has directed this. There is no ambiguity really in what yeah. Talbot is saying. But Talbot also implies that Alan Dulles isn't the kind of person to go rogue. Yeah. He is not representative of the highest elite elements of American society. But he's quite able to move in those circles. Mm. But he's also the connection point to all of those people below him who cannot be re- find themselves represented in those circles at all. And the way that David Talbot presents Alan Dulles's connection to these people is as a kind of like a a he kind of collects the collective consensus, I suppose, mm. and acts upon whatever the consensus of these uh, elite characters are. Yeah. Um, <laughs> David Talbot describes these people as. Alan Dulles's board of directors. Yeah. Oh, like, that's so Al- freaky. Alan Dulles is permitted to exist in all of these circles. He's um, made heads of all of these foundations. And as you say, like, he sits on the Council of Foreign Relations. Yes. Yeah. Um, and has all these connections to high society, basically so that he can, he, he can interpret their, their whims and wishes. Uh, <laughs> now we were having a little debate off mic beforehand it wasn't really a debate we don't often disagree um, but just debating whether I sort of imagined that he was sort of like reading the room yeah uh, but you were suggesting perhaps that the, these people the, Alan Dulles' board of directors had more explicit ways of commanding his actions or I think at least you would like, have to be yeah implying what yeah. he ought to do you'd have to be specific but i mean it might not have taken place at like like i fully believe that like at these meetings the council of foreign relations just goes we should have tougher action wink wink nudge nudge against Jacobo arbenz in guatemala but then like maybe like over cocktails at like the met club or whatever that night they're like we mean fucking like kill him drive <laughs> <in> his bathtub <laughs> like you know what we mean um so I don't know. It, it also, again, it also kind of doesn't really matter because it's like the directions are coming from here and kind of no matter what. Man, how horrifying is that? And again, it speaks to these class dynamics of like, Dulles, you think he's like the top of the top, but it's like, yeah, he isn't. Like, you know, we talk about how he was just like a lawyer at Sullivan and Cromwell who was taking directions from Wall Street guys. Um, and it's just like, that's pretty gnarly. It's, oh man, it's like you always see like the conspiracy theory stuff of like, you know, the people in the shadows, but it's like the people in the shadows, though. Mm-hmm. It's pretty gnarly. Mm-hmm. Should we bring up one, what one of the Kennedys says about the Rockefellers? Oh, I remember. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Is it JFK that ostensibly says that we Kennedys eat Rockefellers for <laughs> oh, breakfast yeah. or something? What bullshit. Yeah. He's, yeah. Because they're like, hey, aren't you worried about these Rockefellers? And Bobby's like, wow, well, we eat these uh, Rockefellers for breakfast. Yeah. Famous last, last words. words. <laughs> Allegedly. 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 <laughs> David Talbot alleges. Yeah, David Talbot alleges famous last words. I wonder if there are any Rockefellers still kicking around. We should get them on the show. Um, any DuPonts. Um, all right. So, I mean, I don't know. We've basically set up everything that happens that day. And then the plan just goes forward. It was this consensus amongst the power elite um, that Kennedy kind of needed to go. He didn't really have anybody to protect him. It was kind of just him and Bobby. And on that day, 
presumably there were a bunch of gunmen and i don't know like this just gets into the fine details but like yeah i mean there was another person who um who talbot wants to implicate apparently alan dulles has a lot of secret meetings with the treasury secretary yeah. whose name i've forgotten c douglas dylan. c douglas dylan i had mm. no idea that the treasury secretary was also responsible for the president's secret service yeah well i no, i don't yes. know I, I this confused me this confused me the first time I read it, and I don't remember if I look because he starts he refers to him as C. Douglas Dillon at first, and then he when he starts talking about the Secret Service guy, it's Doug Dillon, and I would imagine it's the same guy. Mm. But I think that there was a reshuffle in Kennedy's administration, and he was no longer the Treasury Secretary after a certain point. I, I believe. see. I see. So he was just in charge of like security and stuff like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, anyway. Yeah, I don't know if there is a some if there isn't there is another sort of like elite political figure that David Talbot really wants to point a finger at. It's, it's him, Doug Dillon. Yeah, um, suggesting I think oh yeah, it's curious. It's 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 not curious. It's very convenient. <laughs> um, a few months before November, Doug Dillon says, "I'm going to take a deferred summer holiday." Yeah. I'm going to go away for this period and I'm going to come back at like the middle of November and then I'm going to go on this sort of junket to Japan yeah. on the 21st of November. Yeah. So I'll be in the plane so in case the, anybody yeah. knows. And in case anything happens on the 22nd. <laughs> I'm sure nothing will happen on the 22nd. Anyway, bye. And then there's a huge number of questions around the proprietary or pro- the what's the opposite of impropriety? Propriety, propriety. I suppose. <laughs> Of the behavior of the Secret Service on that day, yeah. whether they were the sufficient distance from the car, whether they ought to be alongside the car rather than so far behind it, how many of them actually followed their uh, instructions to actually try and get to the president kind of if thing. If you look at the Zapruder film, it seems like none of them gave a fuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're like, damn, he just There's got one shot. guy who's named who sort of chases the car down kind of yeah. thing. But apart from that... Um, I feel like they should be... Yeah, I don't know. And there's this horrible piece of later on when... Um, evidence is given i assume to the warren commission there's this horrible piece of disinformation which is suggested that kennedy wanted the secret service to hang back to be out of frame so that he could sort of bask in the celebrity that he so sensibly relished yeah kind of thing, which is um sounds like a horrible piece of disinformation yeah. and sort of playing on the sort of like uh a, a certain a certain perception of the type of ego character that jf kennedy had it's Almost. like the Patrice Lumumba asking for prostitutes. It's yeah. like the Mozadeg with his little tiny feet crossed. It's like just talking these people down after they blip them. And it, I, dude, the way he frames C. Douglas Dillon's whole story is so funny because like um, he talks about how in Alan Dulles's um, like diary in his calendar, <laughs> like on October 2nd, 1963, he meets with Douglas Dillon and all it says is Douglas Dillon hyphen bankrupts <laughs> it's just like oh no that can't be a good meeting <laughs> the guy in charge of the secret service and bankrupts it's like whoa bank what reps like reps. representatives oh yeah. i see oh he's meeting <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. it's like oh my god uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> taking his orders yeah so yes so things don't go well for it's, kennedy it's, on that day do they? daily plaza daily it's plaza the, it's the 22nd of november 1963 yeah um yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't I don't know what really there is to say about this. Um 
it wasn't I mean, Oswald. They talk a lot about like the bullets that were. I can read the bit about the ballistics, but like, yeah. I mean, I feel like everybody knows some elements of this yeah. story, right? There were multiple gunmen. The fatal headshot was came from the front, not from the back. Yeah. How could Oswald have fired these three shots in six seconds? The bullets didn't the magic, match the gun. The, that yeah. He had. The, there's the bullet that ostensibly went through Kennedy and then swiveled around and went through <laughs> the Texas governor and then ended up like hitting some secret service agent under a bridge uh. somewhere. <laughs> There's the bullet that went missing and then was found in a gurney at the hospital. Like That's the best part cuz cuz oh, basically undamaged kind yeah, of Yeah, the the bullets don't match like the gun that Oswald supposedly had that they found at the book depository that Oswald supposedly just left on mm-hmm. the floor where he had just shot the president. Yeah. And basically they say that the correct bullet was found and the bullet type was found on the gurney undamaged where Kennedy was placed. So it's like okay, clear Clearly, some guy just walked up and was like, oh, and just like tossed a bullet there. And it's like, come on, yeah. try harder. I, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. So there's like, yeah. And then there's like the the many tens of witnesses who claimed that there were gunshots firing coming from everywhere. There yeah. was the smell of smoke. There's the testimony, see, testimony from like police in the area who reckon that the gunshots were ringing out from all over the place. Yeah. I don't know. There's the fact that there wasn't yeah. any like gunpowder residue found on oswald at all yeah that he clearly didn't fire a gun that day that the package that he supposedly bought in that was supposed to be the gun to work that day everyone he worked with was like it was very tiny it couldn't have had a gun in it and it's also interesting because like talbot makes the point that like when oswald gets arrested he gets arrested in a movie theater like he's just vibing in a movie theater and supposedly i've heard other people basically say that that was him he was supposed to be meeting david atley phillips who was a cia handler and um he, told, he was like, meet me here. Meet me at the... This is all just complete speculation, but he was supposed to be like, meet me here. We'll talk about what happened. We'll talk about the next steps. And then David Atlee Phillips just called the cops and was like, oh, it was Oswald. This guy works there. Arrest him now. Um, but also, like, the thing that Talbot says that damns Oswald is that he tries to make a call to, like, Langley, Virginia or something like that. And whoever's on the other line just, like, hangs up and won't talk to him. It's, and, not, even, it's not even that. He tries to make a phone call late at night mm. and um, the the switchboard operator in the police station basically doesn't put him through. They, oh, yeah. they say to him that nobody picks up, but actually he doesn't put him through, basically because there are these other two mysterious figures in the room who are, like, yeah. watching what she's doing. Yeah, it's so um, early, But, yeah, somebody analysed, like, the, his behaviour and the phone call he was making and suggested that that was him reaching out to his handler. It's, like, normal mm. procedure to try and contact... When you're arrested. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Pe- like, people who are... Um, Directing your operation, I suppose. Basically, yeah. somebody in the know recognized it as standard CIA behavior or practice, I suppose. Yeah. And it's yeah. brutal, too, because, like, he doesn't go in, Talbot doesn't go into too much detail about Jack Ruby other than his, like, <laughs> you rat, you killed my president. <laughs> bam, bam. Um, it's uh-huh. all, yeah. My, yeah. Ruby's insane. But basically, just to say that, like, when confronted about it, um, Robert Kennedy was like, yeah, I went through his Rolodex and it's like everybody that I indicted for racketeering charges. So like, yeah, you were fucking Jack Ruby was like a crook. You're right. Mr. <laughs> was like connected to the mafia. Duh. <laughs> um, David Talbot makes the point that Jack Ruby is like, if you wanted to like draw a caricature yeah. <laughs> of a, like a mob hitman, it's Dave Ruby. Yeah. Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby. <laughs> um, and my personal theory is that Jack Ruby was the only person operating under his own recognizance in this entire thing. Interesting. Because, like, he's so cliched. Yeah. The kind of character you would pick if you were trying to 
take out the person who you'd set up to be the fall guy for your yeah, <laughs> your yeah, presidential yeah. assassination. Although the other the other way to spin it is that like they were just utterly desperate. Yeah. Because Oswald wasn't meant to make it out of the He was supposed to be book. shot like Yeah, there. yeah, he was supposed to be killed there. Mm-hmm. And once he survived, like it was a massive loose end because like obviously if he went to trial, the trial would have uncovered so much stuff kind of thing that yeah. they basically had to um had to sort him out. Yeah, I mean it, yeah, it's it's also but, crazy, dude. Yeah. I mean this, I mean this is like all the stuff that is kind of known for the most part. Like yeah. you watch Oliver Stone's JFK, like this is this is the narrative yeah. kind of thing. You uh you watch Bill Hicks stand up, this is the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> um, um I mean the, 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 the other thing that interested me a little bit about this was um Alan Dulles's movements at the time. Mm. He'd well, oh my god, I mean, dude, he, I know. He had a he had a he had a he recently released a book, right? <laughs> and he was doing this book tour that was mostly like the West Coast and the East Coast. And then for some reason he just had all of these like uh speaking dates in Texas mysteriously. <laughs> <laughs> um but th- th- this is kind of another example of be- him being having a very woken well, having a constructive narrative around his movements at the time when some operation is going down. He wants some kind of plausible deniability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he basically, what he does is he goes back to, he maybe is in Virginia at the time, actually, he speaking is, somewhere. Yeah. And then he goes back into Washington briefly. And then he goes back to Virginia to this mysterious like secret CIA, CIA base. What's it called? The farm? The farm, yeah, yeah. Um, which, where, like, which apparently he set up as basically some kind of like black site, secret operation yeah. site. I think he also had a home there. And remembering like, Alan Dulles wasn't the head of the CIA anymore. Exactly. Essentially, like just fired. a civilian. And he was fired by the president. Yeah. And here he is, like, ostensibly directing CIA activities. He basically spends the entire weekend um, at this ranch, um, at the farm, rather. Yeah, the farm. Allegedly conducting... Um, yeah, pulling the strings. Pulling the strings, I suppose. That's so sad. So whether it's from there that he... he um, or does the the killing of yeah. Oswald? We'll never know. But. I think, yeah. I mean, Ruby. I just get the feeling that they were like, "Holy shit, we need someone to kill Oswald. Who do we have a ton of dirt on? We have a ton of dirt on Ruby. Tell him if he doesn't do this, we'll kill him. And when he gets arrested, we'll get him out of prison. And then he dies of a quick acting cancer. How odd. Um, I think it is also worth talking about De Gaulle's reaction to all of this because Talbot talks about how a couple years after De Gaulle died. A memoir is written by one of de Gaulle's, like, confidants. It is called It Was de Gaulle. And it was published right after his death in 2002. And the book was published in France, but it was never published in full in America. And I'm just going to read a bit from it and see if you can tell. This is published after the confidant's death, not after Yes, after confidant's death. death. Yeah, yeah. See if you can tell why this wasn't published in America. Um, after returning from Kennedy's November 24th funeral in Washington, Charles de Gaulle gave a remarkably candid assessment of the assassination of his inf- to his information minister, Alan Preferite. Quote, what happened to Kennedy is nearly what happened to me, confided the French president. His story is the same as mine. It looks like a cowboy story, but it's not only an OAS story. The security forces were in cahoots with the extremists. And then Preferite asked de Gaulle, do you think Oswald was a front? And he says, everything leads me to believe it. 
Uh, they got their hands on this communist who wasn't one while still being one. He had subpart intellect, was an exalted fanatic, just the man that they needed, the perfect one to be accused. The guy ran away, probably because he became suspicious. They wanted to kill him on the spot before he could get grabbed by the judicial system. Unfortunately, it didn't happen exactly the way they had planned it would. But a trial, you realize, would be just terrible. People would have talked, they would have dug up so much, they would have nearly unearthed everything. The security forces went looking for a cleanup man they totally controlled and who couldn't refuse their offer, and a guy, and that guy sacrificed himself to kill the fake assassin, supposedly in the defense of Kennedy's memory. Baloney! I think it's funny that he says baloney. What's French for baloney? That's classic. Security forces all over the world are the same when they do this kind of dirty work. As soon as they succeed in wiping out the false assassin, they declare the justice system is no longer needed to be concerned, that no further public action is now needed, and the guilty perpetrator is dead. Better to assassinate an innocent man than to let a civil war break out. Better an injustice than a disorder. America is in danger of upheavals, but you'll see. All of them together will observe the law of silence. They'll close ranks. They'll do everything to stifle the scandal. They'll throw Noah's cloak over these shameful deeds in order to not lose face in front of the entire world. In order to not risk unleashing riots in the United States. In order to prevent a union, to preserve the union, and to avoid a new civil war. In order to not ask questions to themselves they don't want to know they don't want to find out they won't allow themselves to find out it's pretty fucking insane that de gaulle said that dude that's just like whoa they don't want to find out they won't allow themselves to find out yeah exactly it's so gnarly man and i mean like that that really makes me think like what would have happened if it all just came to pieces and it was like because I don't know, we talked about the business plot and Spedley Butler and all of this is like, you know, fucking all the Bushes were involved with like trying to get rid of FDR and stuff. That didn't, that like almost came out and like um, Spedley Butler came out as being like, hey, this is what these guys paid me to do. They wanted a fascist take over America and nothing happened because it was all stifled. But like, I don't know, do you, th- what do you think would have happened in America if this all came out that like, hey, the big bourgeoisie just killed Kennedy? Mm-hmm. It's pretty fucking crazy, huh? I don't know, but it's definitely a diagnosis that. Bobby Kennedy shared. Yeah. That seems to be the reason why he didn't kick up much of a fuss until he decided he would. Um, He was very fearful that basically he just like caused tremendous civil strife in America. Mm. Um, Yeah. I wonder, yeah, maybe the, maybe the, maybe the, 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 the whole reason why everybody who had suspicions decided not to act very vehemently on those suspicions was basically just that the deed Mm. was done and, uh, we we should feel lucky that we still have a democracy intact. Yeah, <laughs> at least some shambolic semblance of one. At least mm. um, maybe we can get these people out in due course. But having a massive reckoning over it now uh, would reveal too much. I mean, maybe it's the same reason why Kennedy was so unable to or unwilling to uh, acknowledge the fact that he wasn't in control of his mm. the, wasn't in control of the American government or the U.S. government. It's a similar kind of thing. Like, would how would the American political system endure if it was revealed it was so fundamentally splintered, broken, corrupted, yeah. like, a, 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 able to be interfered with in this manner? Yeah. Well, and we shit talk Kennedy a lot, but it's like people loved Kennedy, dude. Like, mm. they did see him as a bit of a hope. And if it was like, hey, the CIA just killed Kennedy, like... I don't know. I could see nothing happening. I could also see like, a, a, like a, some sort of authoritarian, authoritarian. Like, all right. Mm. But know. I mean, like Kennedy won by like, like True. a percentage at least. True. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Cuba is still such a massive like 
point of cleavage in American society kind of thing. Mm. Well, it's not even that, right? Everybody's just like anti-Castro or anti-Cuba yeah. for some reason. Yeah. But like at that time, like you can imagine American society splintering along lines of people who actually supported at least some kind of like uh, pseudo-dictatorial or... Uh, some kind of government that came to power based up predicated upon an actual active coup, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I can imagine there would be a significant constituency who might have supported that kind of thing. That's you make a good point. That's yeah. a really good point. Yeah, I don't know. It's an it's an insane alternate history, but it's also like, is it because he makes the point again that like a couple years after this, like sixty six percent of the American population didn't buy the fucking Warren report, so yeah. it's like okay, that means nobody had anybody to blame. And so I guess the real question is, if they had people to blame, what would have actually happened then? Like, a couple of years later, Bobby Kennedy gets shot. And then, like, that same year, uh, Martin Luther King gets shot. And mm-hmm. it's it's all the and same apparatus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy how that just happened. Um, and so I don't, know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it makes me wonder, like, people, how systems can endure when people have such suspicion, but no, yeah. like... Um, no concrete evidence, I suppose. Well, that that opens us up to a what, bigger what, conversation. Yeah, what kind of level of evidence would you need, kind of thing? Yeah, but I mean that that leads us to like the question of like again the purpose of talking about conspiracy stuff at all because it's like that energy when nobody trusts the system goes to like when nobody. This is going to sound like cringy, but like when nobody on the left talks about this stuff, all that energy just goes to like fucking QAnon stuff and like. You know, like the right wing has has a penchant for because uh, they're like the you know classic we don't trust the big government guys. Like they have a penchant for sniffing out weird stuff that <laughs> except for be when we into. do, just <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. Jesus Christ. except for when they're prosecuting like a war and then we love them <laughs> exactly. And then like they sniff out something weird like this and then come to horrible conclusions, whether that's like anti-Semitic shit or whether it's just like insane Hillary Clinton stuff. Because like you know you talk about. Uh, Libya, and you talk about like their classic something suspicious was going on in our dealings with Libya, and then they come to the conclusions of like it was Hillary Clinton leaving our people out to die. The fucking it's like no, the suspicious thing was that we were buying weapons from the Libyan rebels and selling them to ISIS. It's like that's the suspicious thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, I don't know. We've talked about this before, but like the strategic use of some of this stuff is. I don't know, big, <laughs> it's large and it's omnipresent and hanging over everything. And when you ignore it, all of that energy goes to the right. And like, when you read this book, you don't come away trusting capitalism. And obviously, like, I don't know if the word capitalism like comes up once in this book, but like, you realize that there is this connection between um, capital and the state and how like, it's a lot easier, I suppose is what I'm saying, to explain the crazy story of how they killed Kennedy than to exchange than to explain like the tangential fall of the rate of profit you know what i mean um and so like i don't know maybe that's why we're talking about it um i don't know people on the left are talking about this stuff now a little bit so who knows yeah it's definitely something we need to work on in the future working out what not necessarily what the right line is on this but what a nuanced approach to these Mm. kind of discussions are like it's definitely worth engaging with concepts like the deep state. Sure. It's definitely worth considering sort of the inertial force that is a state apparatus kind of mm. thing. How how norms of society are con- continued and carried on. Um, it's going to make me sound like a massive liberal in some ways. <laughs> but one of the things that I was thinking about, both in terms of like the post-Kennedy assassination, 
but also some aspects of our contemporary situation now is that like how the narrative is controlled. Sure. And there's an extent to which the narrative is controlled in this by the official investigations and how they're manipulated, but also the connection. What really sprung to mind is like the media and journalism. Uh, yeah. David Talbot's got it in massively yeah. for like people who just aren't willing to ask questions along these lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it sort of comes back to this question that De Gaulle is raising, this thing that's preoccupying uh, Bobby Kennedy as well. Is like, and seems to be the same uh, position that the media takes. Is like, how much do we need to support the official narrative, and what is motivating our desire to support a particular narrative? Yeah, and in a, in, I guess in all contexts, but in a particular in our present context, it it provokes for me questions around how does the media fit into the ideological apparatus that is mm. capitalism, I suppose, mm. or more broadly, just like the constitutional or political norms of the various countries that we live in, or even the global order. Like, yeah. And how much would it take to have the official story of any incident like this questioned by the media to actually bring it into public consciousness in a way that it had some kind of effect, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much, what would it take to take that generalized suspicion that people have and turn it into something that they act upon? Obviously, I don't really want the media to do that. Yeah, sure. I don't want to, I want to leave it up to the media, obviously. Like, now, getting, getting into the realms of more, like, concrete stuff, right? Moving away from conspiracy theory a little bit. Like, if we're talking about independent class power, like, an independent class and potentially its party would have to get itself in the position where it can uh, define a narrative mm. and construct a narrative and propagate ideas. Yeah. And that's the whole purpose around organization and party and stuff. Um, mm. I feel like I've diverged a long way from what we were talking about here. <laughs> no, well said. Like, I don't know. Well said. I mean, like, I don't know. This is like, maybe just on a more concrete experiential level, this is like the stuff that you know, the guy at work who's a libertarian and you, like you, this is the stuff that you come the closest on because they'll have some sort of JFK conspiracy theory and it will be, they'll recognize that like the state has something to do with it, but it's also like this class and they'll go back and be like, yeah, you know, man, like the DuPonts and all this stuff and Smedley Butler and all this stuff. And if you have like an actual Marxist approach to this stuff and explain like you know why classes operate in the way that they do and how that relates to your material existence yeah you you can come close to like convincing these people that like it isn't a state it isn't a big government you know what i mean so i don't know it's, it's definitely worth talking about and it's definitely worth yeah. having a line so you don't just get owned by people who are like you know yeah yeah, yeah. i hadn't really thought about this dichotomy but it is the one you're trying to provoke right the idea that Either people will draw sensible materialist conclusions about the motivations behind sort of like uh, the actions of a self-conscious class or they will draw ludicrous and deranged <laughs> conclusions about yeah. like eating children and pedophile <laughs> rings and, and I don't know, like ancient aliens and yeah. whatever. Like, yeah. Why? Why yeah. not direct people in in a toward a materialist analysis of circumstances, even if it's via stories such as this? Hundred percent. And I mean, it is like I will take it a step further and say, like, not why not, but like it is vital. 
Because like when there is a vacuum on the left of talking about stuff like this that was clearly suspicious and clearly not what we were told, you're just leaving it open to like, it's not that you're necessarily immediately leaving it open to the right wing, but you're just leaving it open to anything and you're leaving it open to just speculation. And when there's no actual voice on the left talking about this stuff, because it's beneath us. And why would we talk about the Kennedy assassination? Who cares what happened to Kennedy? It's like, it's interesting. And yeah, Kennedy, he's a piece of shit, comes from like a long line of like rich pieces of shit, but like... You know, mm-hmm. it's fascinating mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. And also, like, um, we've been, well, we've not been mocking. We've always been, like, elevating the independent researcher. Yeah. Oh, 100%. In that, like, elevate and celebrate people who are asking questions and looking for answers mm-hmm. and give them a narrative and an answer. Uh, yeah. I mean, this goes back to, like, our why, conversations. Why mock that? Why? Absolutely. Why, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This like but we've sorry. No, go, go, ahead. go ahead. I mean, we we all we all have to like, I don't know, <laughs> take the red pill at a certain point in time and like, yeah, fl- step outside of the world that we've been indoctrinated into and ask certain questions yeah. and wh- whether they're like, whether they're questions around how production is actually determinative <laughs> of the relations of the society in which we live, or whether they're questions around. Um, I don't know how there's a secret cabal of <laughs> third dimensional aliens that are like, I don't know. If only that's what we were up against. <laughs> we were against capitalism. If only it was that simple. Yeah, it's worse. It's, worse. <laughs> it's much worse. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's all, it, yeah, it's also just fun. It's also just fun to read about this stuff. <laughs> yes. It's crazy. Get this book if you want. Read yeah. it if you want. It's great fun. Can we, we do have to mention. There are more things to say. So yeah, we can carry on. We, I mean, we, we got to talk about Really quickly, I just want to say that immediately following the Kennedy assassination, uh, former President Truman wrote a lengthy article saying, hey, guys, the CIA is out of control. Just saying that. (laughs) Unrelated to nothing Uh, at all. Unrelated to what just happened. I just (laughs) wanted to say we need to get rid of the CIA. We can kind of move on from that. But really quickly, let's also just talk about Bobby Kennedy, because this is almost an afterthought, because it's just like fait accompli, kind of. Mm. Talbot makes the point that everyone was kind of waiting to see if, because clearly Bobby Kennedy knew that something was a mess, that it wasn't just this one lone guy. Um, it seemed, Talbot's making the point that, like, everyone was waiting to see if Bobby Kennedy would win the primary, and he did, and that night he was murdered. Yeah. <laughs> and he brings yeah. up all of this evidence about, like, Sirhan Sirhan couldn't have fired all of the bullets that he did because the killing shot was fired from behind. <laughs> Iron- ironically, in this instance, the shot the, the shot came from behind <laughs> yeah, rather than in front, exactly. where it was supposed to have been. Also, man, how gnarly is the photo in this book of Kennedy's autopsy? It's pretty brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, again, afterthought, Bobby Kennedy, that was like one of the... Actually, I was going to say it's one of the last loose ends they needed to tie up, but it wasn't at all. They were cleaning up loose ends from the Kennedy assassination <laughs> for a very long time. Including allegedly dropping a plane on someone's house. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And including allegedly getting Bill O'Reilly to murder somebody. Uh, you didn't hear me say that. Um, oh, yeah, we didn't talk about that at all. Oh, yeah, we can't do that. It's so yeah. <laughs> Let's just say really quickly, Oswald CIA handler was probably a guy named George DeMornschild, who was a fucking white Russian, which is really gnarly in itself and a crazy story there. He starts to kind of get cold feet like a decade or so after the actual Kennedy assassination. He tells he does the part that he's supposed to do and he says everything he's supposed to say. But then he's found with a 20 gauge shotgun wound to the head and he's found by Bill O'Reilly, which like look into that. <laughs> Independent researchers look into that. That's all I got to say. That's fucking okay, nuts. Okay. 
we're willing to allege that Bill O'Reilly killed <laughs> yeah. Imagine. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And yeah, Damon Shield's death seemed to happen to coincide with a whole load of other people getting chopped up getting and put killed. in suitcases. <laughs> oh my! There uh, is so much more uh, to this. And do yeah. your independent research because it is so crazy. <laughs> Even if you just want to stay up late one night and be like, "Whoa, dude!" <laughs> and the one thing I will say about the independent researcher as well is it kind of almost brings us back. I'm reaching a bit here to our conversation about science and how science operates in um, capitalism and that you kind of can't operate outside of these capitalist structures if you're at a university or something like that. Um, that's the closest you're going to get is being an independent researcher. And while many of them are uh, nuts, <laughs> a lot of them aren't. And I think prior to like certain events of this millennia, um, a lot of them were like very well, like not, maybe not well thought of, but like, it was just a thing that people did as they looked into stuff and it was like journalism and you know there you go so yeah do your independent research folks Oof. there we go i'm convinced that uh oswald killed kennedy by the way <laughs> I, don't, I don't buy any of this, any of this just bullshit. a cool story <laughs> it's just a cool story man oswald did it we've enjoyed telling you it dude it, it, we, i've said this before but it would have been so funny if we got to the end of the we got to the end of this book and he was like but all the evidence holds up it was oswald <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh dear. I wonder. I was thinking about um, there's a horrible, horrible um, story about Alan Dulles when he is exam. He and the other members of the Warren Commission are examining the clothes mm. that Kennedy was wearing when he kill was killed, and uh, when the doctors in the hospital were trying to save him, they cut his tie off. Cool. Yeah. And uh, Alan Dulles is supposed to have joked when seeing these like uh, blood-stained clothes of Kennedy's. He's supposed to have quipped that, "Hey, look, John F. Kennedy wore a clip-on tie." Oh my god! And, like, if you needed any more reason to hate Alan Dulles, that's so gnarly, dude. I mean, you've got plenty of reasons to hate Alan Dulles. A poor sense of humor is not one yeah. of them. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's gross. Um. Also, I just want to throw this out there. Gerald Ford was on the Warren Commission. Oh, and we forgot to say, so was Alan Dulles. Like, oh, yeah. duh. Like, Alan Dulles was, like, not in charge of it, but, like, he was in charge yeah, of Alan it. Alan Dulles was in charge of the commission that investigated the killing of John F. Kennedy. And you'd think everyone would be like, wait a minute, wasn't this guy fired by Kennedy? Why are we letting him on? Whatever. Mm. Also, I didn't... In the early 70s, um, Lyndon B. Johnson lied <laughs> what's evidently a barefaced lie by saying that it was actually Bobby Kennedy who yes, asked him to put Alan Dulles on the Warren Commission. And Bobby this Kennedy is not five saying or six anything. years after Bobby Kennedy was killed, so he couldn't yeah, yeah, like, exactly. object. Oh, by the way, we just tie up that loose end. I have a, I have a theory that, well, this isn't a theory, this is just what happened, that um, uh, Ford is like the first of the, um, and we've moved on from this because of Trump, but like the first of the, just a just a goofball kind of guy and mm. like reagan was like he wasn't the goofball who was actually like knew what he was doing like hw bush and maybe like bush just because he was an idiot <laughs> and like an actor and like he was had dementia and like whatever but i think I, ford was like the first of the like look at him falling down the steps he doesn't know what he's doing it's like he was on the warren commission <laughs> <laughs> it's like what <laughs> yeah 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 talbot describes him as like an, an ambitious young senator or something yeah 
And like he goes on to be like the clownish president. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. Was it, it? It was. Although like LBJ seems to be like the Philistine president. Yeah. Some ways. yeah, yeah <laughs> like, sure. But I mean, maybe it's just compared to the Kennedys. Up, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's like they kind of needed someone like that. Yeah. Was it? It was Ford though when we were doing the um, uh, Rumsfeld thing where he was like with Ford, right? When there was the assassination attempt. It was Ford, right? Because then they kind of had to cow him into being like, do a little bit of a reshuffle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, he was like, whoa, I just got done with Dulles. I thought I was free. And then there's like this mf named Rumsfeld. Like, goddamn. Oh, we were joking that Alan Dulles, uh, Rumsfeld tried to kill Ford. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alleging. Alleging. Joking. The torch has passed. The torch has passed. <laughs> uh, mm. um, yeah, pick up this book, man. It's a lot of pages. But it reads easily, and you can skim it, and it. I've been putting it off, and then I've devoured it this week. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Partially because you were forced. Well, yeah, to. Forced, of course. <laughs> um, the, the 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 hidden hand of secret pressure of the force of having to podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, next episode, Dan and I will be back because we. Yeah, back to back to real time. Back to real time. Yeah, podcasting Dan, in real time. No. <laughs> We're both going on a nice, well-earned vacation, uh-huh. I believe, which will be nice. I don't know. I think mine's going to be relaxing, although it might be um, hard work at the same time. Yeah, true. You will also be I'm working. going to be working, but... Be a big headache. I'm going to be having fun. Yeah. Um, and I will be uh, getting away from work. Goddamn. That's nice. Very, very nice. Nice thing about this country is that they give you time off and they pay you for it. It's very nice. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we solved the Kennedy assassination, Dan. Didn't think go. we'd be doing that. There we go. We started the show. <laughs> what next? <laughs> what next? Oh, I know what's next. We won't bring up what's next, but I know what's next. Um, I'd like to talk to some of these independent researcher types that still exist and just kind of see how they view themselves. You know what I mean? Especially in a like QAnon world, the people who are like, I don't know, at least somewhat more level-headed. Yeah. Interesting. That's a really good idea. Yeah. All right. I like that. Yeah. Let us know if you're a researcher. Oh, we've been recording for two hours and 40 minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'm, I'm more than ready to say that my name's been Jack. This, is, this series, Dan, has rocked. And it's been very fun. And, um, yeah, we'll be doing something like it again. Look at us. We finished another book. Too. Hey, and a big one at that. And a big one, in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very pleased to have finished this. It's been, um, and in this manner, in this fashion, yeah. at yeah. this time. At this time. It's been a, uh, a constant companion i suppose looming (laughs) tome threatening from the sidelines to force its way onto our podcast agenda (laughs) and um uh and maybe i'll be bereft without its constant constant presence if if kennedy had known that in dying he would have bought us this much joy i think he would have let him take a shot (laughs) butterfly effect isn't it Yeah, that is the timeline in which we live. Yeah, <laughs> goodness. All right, well, uh, yeah, I've been Jack, and uh, yeah, see ya. I've been Dan. Go forth and research. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People too by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time.